a science story. Huh. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, in honor of Mother's Day, our stories are all about becoming a mom. Now, I'm not a mom, except to a cat, but let's be real, that doesn't count. And I'm not sure if I ever want to be a mom because it seems like a really tough gig. It doesn't seem to pay well or have good working hours, if I'm honest. But I have to say, I've always been fascinated by the process of becoming a mom. It is kind of magical, just from like a biological perspective. The way your body changes and shifts to accommodate this new life is wild. I mean, your blood volume doubles, your organs shift and grow. And while your high school sex ed teacher might have said differently, just getting pregnant is actually pretty hard. There really is a reason why they call it the miracle of life. And honestly, kudos to all the moms and moms-to-be out there who went through it all. Anyway, our first story is from Julia Whitehouse. It was recorded at Crane Theatre in New York City in March this year. The theme that night was help. I love throwing a party. I love a house party. I love doing it all myself. Uh, I just uh, say, you bring the drinks, and I will make all of the food. I I like impressing people with how I can make mini quiches and cut up my own vegetables, like, you know, for a crudite platter. I'll make that dip. I don't buy that dip. Homemade. Uh, I like impressing people. I I overheard my friend Naomi once at a party saying to somebody else, when you come to Julia's, you know you're going to get fed. probably this part of my personality, impressing people in my home, that led me to uh, decide to have a home birth. Uh, uh, I got pregnant, and I I hadn't really thought about how to be pregnant or how to have a baby. Uh, And but I'd I'd heard of home birth before, but I was like, ew, gross. gross. Why would you do that in your house? uh, it just, it seemed like, not for me, thanks. Um, like water birth, like why would you do that to a child? Um, and, uh, and then I, I called up some doctors once I found out uh, that I was pregnant. And uh, the receptionist used the word viable like one too many times. Like you have to come in to make sure it's a viable pregnancy. And she just sounded so impatient and, and I, I just, I felt stupid about it. Like, you know, I didn't know what was happening in my body, but I didn't want somebody to, like, remind me of that every appointment. Um, So I thought, like, maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe a pregnancy isn't an emergency. Like, maybe I don't need to go to a hospital. Like, I've been to a hospital, like, when my mom had a stroke and when my friend was run over by a subway. Like, I, maybe I can have a baby in my home. Like, maybe I can do this myself. Maybe. Maybe. So I called up a few midwives and I made some appointments for interviews, which you can do. And uh, 
and they were all lovely, lovely people, but I chose one, a woman named Kara, and uh, she uh, was very sensitive, uh, very straightforward, uh, and had all the experience, uh, like the 20 plus years experience of being a certified midwife in Manhattan and the uh, boroughs. So I was very, I, I just felt a vibe like I was gonna be taking care of this woman. If something were to go awry, she'd be there. She would know what to do. Uh, and she recommends like all the books, Ina Mae Gaskin, Natural Birth, The Bradley Method. I read them, I love them. Uh, and she recommends uh, uh, hiring a doula. In fact, she requires it. A doula, first time birth, get a doula, I do. I hire a doula, lots of money. Reflexologist also. <laughs> uh, and uh, then she also requires uh, that my husband and I take a uh, mindful birth class together. Since we're going to be doing this together, we made this baby, we can birth this baby, and we got to learn how to do it. And we do. We go to this uh, class uh, in this YMCA over on uh, 14th Street. It's like this, um, you know, stinky, stinky room. Um, and in the sort of end of the summer, uh, and it's all the all these all these couples, and we're all learning from this woman named Mary Esther Malloy, lovely lady, spoke like this. Like you can't imagine her ever getting mad at anyone, um, and obviously an ex-dancer because she like sat on her on her uh, yeah you know yeah, yeah, yeah uh, like she sat on her uh, uh, legs like that, like bending in a way like nobody should. Um, you know, a natural birth, not a natural body. Um, <laughs> But she, uh, so, but we learned about pain management from her, like, you know, by holding ice cubes to our wrist, like, how, how long can you do this? And, um, and also, like, all the best ways to labor, like bouncing on a ball and, uh, and also sitting on a toilet and also sitting on a chair backwards. And but my favorite by far was the one where I hang on my husband and I look in his eyes, lock eyes, and mm, just sway, like dancing, dancing. <laughs> Oh, it's gonna, this is the one we're gonna do. I love this one, this is great. Um, so, so I was imbued with confidence by this class. I was, I was ready, I was, this is gonna be fantastic. I'ma do this myself. And 41 weeks, my husband and I are like, where's the baby? Um, and my uh, midwife uh, suggests that I go get a uh, uh, ultrasound. Uh, you know, let's just find out what's happening. And so uh, the only place that I could get an appointment was at a, an imaging center that I'd never been to before over on the east side. And I'm up in Harlem. Uh, so I just like, I take the morning. I take a nice long walk and I, uh, through Central Park, beautiful fall day. And uh, there are people running and I'm a runner. So I like nod at them like, I'll be with you soon. <laughs> Um, I'm in such a great mood. I'm just like full of, full of myself, full of a baby, like whoa, life, uh, feeling it. And uh, when I walk into the office, the technician is, uh, you know, properly not impressed. She's quite cold, which is fine. It's her job. She sees women like this all the time, I'm sure. Um, I'm perky, and, and the room is all dark, and she squirts the gel, the warm gel on my belly, and she like wands it, and vroom, vroom, and clickety-click, clickety-click on the computer, taking the images, click-click-click, and, um, and then she leaves me alone in the room for what seems like a long time, uh, too long uh, to simply wipe uh, gel off my belly uh, with a paper towel, uh, and then suddenly she runs in and rushes me down a hallway into an office with a doctor, a man I've never met, who says to me, where is your hospital? And I say, 
I, I don't have a hospital, I'm, I'm having a home birth. And he says, well, I'm trying to get in touch with your midwife, but I can't, I can't reach her, and your baby is small, your fluid is low, and your placenta is old. We gotta get this baby out now. And I'm like, whoa, what? I'm, I'm having a home birth, and, and, and I, 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 don't, I don't wanna cry, and I also don't wanna to explain to this man that I don't like how you're making me feel stupid. Like, you know, I don't, I, 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 I wanna do this myself, but not at the cost of my baby. Like, I'm not trying to prove something with this. I, I just, I just, and I, I don't wanna cry, so I don't. I just ask him, is this an emergency? And he says, no, but it's emergent. <laughs> I say, may I leave? And he says, yes, but, and I say, oh, okay. And I, I back out, I, because it's not his fault. Like, I'm like, you know, I get it. Like, he's just trying to like save whatever, like in case, just in case, just in case. But no, I, I'm having a home birth though, you know, like, and I don't know who he is. And so I call my midwife, she picks up, I can reach her. And she says, go home, I'll be there soon. And she meets me at my apartment. It's like one o'clock in the afternoon. She checks me out. She doesn't tell me how much I'm dilated, but I'm dilated. And she says, it's happening today. Later tonight or early tomorrow morning, this baby's coming. It's happening. It's happening. You relax. You rest. Eat. Uh, and when your husband comes home, have him bring some ice cream and make a milkshake with ice cream, almond milk, castor oil, and a splash of vodka if you feel like it. So I spend the afternoon just resting, eating a tuna fish sandwich, and, uh, and then my husband comes home, and it's like, I don't know, it's after six, and he comes home with the ice cream, he's like, here it is, and I put it all in the blender, he's like, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, it's, uh, I don't know, uh, it's what the midwife said. And um, so, uh, and then we like lay down, because we know like first labor, what we learned in the birth class, like this is uh, a first labor, it's gonna take a while. Um, it could be anywhere from like 12 to 19 to 36 hours, you know, this is, this is a, a, a while, so let's like lay down and get some rest. And as soon as I lay down, like, you know, like I text my mom like, it might be happening tonight. I lay down, I'm like, oh, it's happening tonight. Uh, like this wave of a contraction just happens upon me and I'm like, waha, oh, I can't lay down, I can't sit down, I need to be walking and my husband, he pops up and he's like, oh, okay, uh, I'll put some uh, leftovers in the microwave. I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat, uh, you know, while we're still at the beginning of this. Uh, so he pops some uh, leftovers in the microwave. And I don't know if you guys have ever been at 59th Street and um, you accidentally get on the A Express. Um, and uh, you're there and uh, the 72nd whizzes by and then 86 and you're like, what the, what the fuck? What the fuck? Does anybody else know? We're on a runaway train. And you're going to 125th, but you had no idea that you were, no, this is, this is not the train. And that's kind of like what happened in my labor. Um, uh, we thought we were at the very beginning and uh, I am suddenly like, whoa. And the sound of the microwave is ba boom, ba boom. Like, your food is ready, and I'm like, Ugh. and I, I won't let my husband go, because I'm locking eyes. This is the position that I want. And um, 
And I'm, uh, and then suddenly I'm like shitting and vomiting and leaning up against the bathroom wall, sweating and crying, looking at my husband saying, I've got to get better at this. <laughs> and, uh, and he's on the, he calls up the midwife. He says, you know, hey, um, this is what's happening. Uh, and she says, hey, first labor, it's okay, it's fine. I will be there soon in a matter of hours. It's all right, it's fine. And uh, then suddenly I rip off all of my clothes and I jump into the bathtub like, and I want to push. I want to bear down. I want to get the baby out. And uh, he s tells this to her and she goes, oh, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be there soon. And... Um, <laughs> She instructs him uh, to uh, tell me not to bear down, not but to blow him. And he says, you have to blow me, Julie. I say, what? And, <laughs> and uh, so then he explains, and so I and, uh, and then she also instructs him to put his hand between my legs to see what he feels. And he feels the baby's head. Um, and so she tells him to keep his hand there. In essence, holding the baby in until she can uh, be there. And um, anyway, so we're there, and he's holding the baby inside me, and I'm blowing air at him, and he says, do you want the water on? And I say, oh, okay. And I hadn't planned on a fucking gross water birth. I, I didn't clean my tub. Like, uh, I was going to feel this with all the pain imaginable. I can do this. And I'm like, I don't know, okay, water. He turns on the water, and then the sound of the water is just so annoying. I say, turn the water off. He says, Julia, you're doing a good job. You're doing a great job. And I say, there is no Julia, only Zool. <laughs> finally, the midwife arrives. She comes into the bathroom, and I'm so weak at this point. All I can say is, Kara, what do I do? And she says, what your body wants to. Just push. And one contraction later, my beautiful baby is born into about an inch of water, piss, shit, and blood. <laughs> We're all tears. Uh, the placenta comes out, third stage of labor. Uh, and then uh, everybody leaves the bathroom and I shower my now empty body, feeling very proud of myself. And I get out of the shower, I wrap myself in a towel, put on my first pair of mesh underwear, <laughs> and walk into my living room where the lights are dim and it's warm. The doula has finally arrived. Uh, <laughs> All is forgiven that she missed the entire thing uh, because she's, she's scrambling some eggs and some potatoes. And the midwife is uh, affixing the uh, handheld scale to weigh the baby. And my husband is sitting by the window with a, our little bundle wrapped in warm towels and tears dried on his face. And look at everybody. It's my baby's first house party. <laughs> and I clap my hands. It's like, let's do that again. <laughs> and two and a half years later, we do. <laughs> and my midwife says, you know, it's good that you planned on a home birth because you never would have made it to the hospital. A hospital birth just wasn't for me. Thank you. Thank you.
that was Julia Whitehouse. Julia Whitehouse is a writer and comedian and mother and daughter. She has written for New Yorker Daily Shouts, McSweeney's, Split Sider, Mother Magazine, and Pop Sugar. She hosts Manhattan's longest-running weekly storytelling open mic at the Duplex every Monday at 7 p.m. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. We have shows coming up in Boston, London, Atlanta, and Seattle this month. For more information and details, visit storyclatter.org shows. You can also visit storyclatter.org shows to find out more about how to bring Story Clatter to your community. And if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclatter.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, if you have not already followed us on social media, follow us at Story Clatter. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storyclider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. Right now, you can watch the full Proton Prom on Patreon. Yeah, the whole video. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story is from Nessa Goldman. It was recorded at Jewel Box Theater in Seattle in March this year. The theme that night was troublesome. I told my husband that by the time I was 35, I wanted to be holding our children. We were 30 years old when I met, and I wasn't in any rush, but I'm a science teacher and I'm a planner, and I know how biology works, and so I made it very clear that that was what I wanted. But somewhere down the line, when turned to if. Fast forward, I am 35 years old and I am childless, and my friend Dawn has just told me that she is pregnant. And the thing that is happening to me at this time is all my friends are starting to have children is that I have the appropriate response, which is to be very happy for them, followed by this depressing, crushing sadness that I can't control. And it's sabotaging my life and my relationship. And so on this drive out to a cabin, as I've just received this news, it is very uncomfortable in the car with my husband. And I just can't stomach it. I can't take it because kids have become a four letter word, but I can't take it anymore. And so we get to the cab and I just asked him, what is the worst part about not having kids? And he says, not having time to take care of other people. I was like, what? That is what having kids is. That is exactly what it is. It is taking care of other people. And he was like, this isn't a fight. It's not a debate. It's just how I feel. (laughs) So I'm like, okay. And so over the weekend, I'm just running it through my head. Who? are these other people? And so I asked him, I said, who are these other people? And he said, I, I don't know. I'm like, oh, great. Other people. He doesn't know. He just doesn't want to have kids. That's awesome. And as I'm ruminating on this, I'm just realizing the problem isn't that he wants to take care of other people. The problem is that these other people are not me. So prior to this weekend, we had been looking to buy a house together, and as the weekend came to a close, I told him I was going to be looking to buy a house by myself. 
Three months later, I am in my very first home that I purchased by myself, and I think I'm ready to start dating. I've never been on the dating apps before, but I think I know how they work. 35, loves to hike, looking for my baby daddy. <laughs> so can, if you can imagine, I didn't get too many takers kind of right off the bat. A couple burned hot and fast. Nothing really went anywhere. And then the pandemic hit. So now I'm reevaluating everything in my life, and I can't help but think about Mike, my ex, and I'm just like, why? Why aren't we together? You know, the world's going to hell. Like, kids don't matter. In fact, I'm glad I don't have kids at this time, and I'm just, I just kind of want to be with him. And so we start hanging out a little bit, you know, going on socially distanced walks. And at the end of one of these walks, I just, I ask him, I say, you know, do you want to date me? Shouldn't we just date again? And he said, no. And so we hugged for a very long, uncomfortable time at the end of that walk. And he said, now what? And I said, this is it. Because I didn't want to be his friend. I, I couldn't be his friend. I still, you know, loved him. And so he got in his car and he drove away. And I sat in my car and I sobbed. And it was one of those days where it was just kind of like sun showers and raining a bit. And as I drove away, the sun came up from behind the clouds and Jimmy Cliff came on the radio and it was, I can see clearly now, the rain is gone. And it was just somewhat prophetic as I cried and though really came to understand that this relationship was over and it was time for me to start something new. And as I thought about what that something new could be, what is my new life look like, I realized that in my attempts at dating, I had really been trying to fill what I called the Mike-shaped hole in my life. I was looking for the next man to just step in so we could continue on this journey towards starting a family. And that just wasn't fair to me and it wasn't fair to any of the men I was gonna date. I needed to figure out what my new future looked like. Maybe it had kids, maybe it didn't, maybe I did it alone. And as I'm contemplating all these options, I realize that more than anything, I just want time. I just need a little bit more time to figure it all out. And then like a light bulb goes off, I realize, oh my goodness, I can freeze my eggs. I could freeze my eggs and I can have some more time. So I contact my doctor and I start that ball rolling. Um, turns out at 37, I'm actually a pretty good candidate after we run all the tests. The only thing is that my AMH is a little on the low side. I'm actually in the 10th percentile. AMH keeps track of your ovarian reserve. And so while most women could expect to get 15 to 20 eggs, I would be lucky if I got 10 to a dozen. But I'm like, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I can do a dozen, we can do this. And so a couple months later, I became a human science experiment. Now, like I said, I am a science teacher. I am not a medicine. I have never administered a needle before. And all I really got was a couple PowerPoints and my dosage. And then there I am giving myself needle, needles on a regular basis. I'm giving myself FSH and LH or synthetics that trigger it in your body. And I am sticking the pointy needle into the fat flowled and I'm getting the hang of it. And these drugs are sending my body into overdrive because ordinarily a woman would release one egg in their cycle, and like I said, I wanted a dozen. So we are sending signals from the endocrine system to my ovaries to like get those eggs pumping. We want to make lots of big, juicy, mature eggs so that we can <laughs> keep them for later, right? So after about a week and I'm getting the hang of giving myself all these needles, I go in for my first screening, and this is kind of the moment of truth. We are going to find out if this even worked at all because there's a chance that it didn't work. And so I'm like, come on, one dozen. And we go in for the ultrasound, and it's not a dozen, and it's not 10, it's eight. And most people might be upset that it's eight, but I'm like, hey, it's working, and I just want to be an optimist about all this. I'm just so happy that I, I did something about it. 
So now at this point, after sending those those ovary factories into overdrive, now I need to kind of pump the brakes because the way that the menstrual cycle works, for those of you unfamiliar, is that your uh, ovaries produce eggs to a certain maturity and then they want to let them go, right? We ovulate, but I don't want to ovulate just yet. So now I have to do this new needle, cetratide, that's going to stop my ovaries and make sure I hold on to them. And so the other drugs really weren't so bad. I didn't have too many side effects. And I was told cetratide might have a little bit more. Well, the first night, not so bad. I'm like, I got this. The next day, I am laid up on the couch, cradling a hot water bottle, groaning, being like, what have you done? Like, of course this was going to happen. What did you think when you stuck a bunch of drugs into you that you weren't going to feel anything? And I'm starting to think this must be what morning sickness feels like. And I am so uncomfortable. I don't know if I want to puke or pass out, but all I know is that I don't want to do this alone. Like, I just wish I had somebody to take care of me, even though I really want kids and these, you know, eggs are an insurance policy. I, more than I want kids, I want a family. So I'm going in for the big day. I've had my final screening, everything's good, final trigger. And I'm on the gurney in my cute little uh, hospital gown and the nurse is giving me the once over before I go in for the procedure. The way it works is they're gonna go in through my vagina with a speculum, then they take a nice, another needle, perforate my vaginal wall, pluck out some eggs out of my follicles, and if they get any good ones, put them in a Petri dish and we'll freeze them. Now, if that sounds a little painful, it is. <laughs> um, that's why you go under general anesthetic, so I count down 10, 9, 8, and before I know it, I'm waking up and the nurse is giving me the news. We had great success. We got four eggs. And I'm like, hmm, four eggs. That was not what I was told. <laughs> and I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I just paid $10,000 for four eggs. And I'm doing the math, like at 15% attrition, that's less than one egg is likely to become an embryo. So not a great result, but I got four eggs. So I'm ready to date again, guys. <laughs> and this time I'm like, I don't need to find my baby daddy. I just want to have a good time. So I go on a, lots of dates. I make a spreadsheet because of course I love a good spreadsheet. So I'm keeping track of their names, their age, their nicknames. We've got dad bod and handsome Vince. I'm keeping precise notes about them. And then most importantly, if they are a potential life partner. And in one week, I go on six dates in six days with six different people. And by the time I got to my sixth date, I was pretty tired. And I was supposed to go with this guy named Lucas. And I was like, I don't know, this goofy country boy, do I really want to rally? And I was like, come on, Nessa, you said you were going to give everybody a shot. You should go. And I'm so glad I didn't cancel on him because Lucas is nothing like my ex-husband, where my ex is short and furry and completely unmotivated to do anything with his life. Lucas is tall and handsome and we're talking about the Dunning-Kruger curve and how to improve ourselves and what we want and we have this incredible chemistry and he wants kids. So I'm pretty excited about Lucas. He gets the first tick in the potential life partner box. But I don't want to put all of my literal and figurative eggs in his basket just yet. <laughs> so I keep dating. And we keep dating. And we live about two hours apart from one another, so we're doing this long distance back and forth. First it's like one night every month, then it's two nights every couple weeks, and then it's Friday night to Monday morning at 5 a.m. every single weekend. And on one of these weekends, we start talking about kids, and not in this 
far off when, la la la, we're going to have children. We talk about our kids, like what we want to raise our children like and how we want to be a family. And so 18 months after we first met, he moves in with me. We adopt the most wonderful dog in the world named Herbert and start our family. And we start trying to get pregnant. After nine months, I got pregnant. Eight weeks later, I had a miscarriage. So we're still trying. And if these old eggs don't work, I got four more on ice. Thank you very much. That was Nessa Goldman. Nessa Goldman is a middle school math and science teacher in Sequim, Washington. She is the host of a bi-monthly local storytelling event, the Out Loud Story Slam. Her stories have been shared on the Risk podcast and Story Night. You can find her online at outloudstoryslam.com. The Story Collider is so grateful to Julia and Nessa for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our operations manager, Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Tracy Segarra and Tracy Rowland, and by Kent Whipple and Juan Carlos Martinez Jr., respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we'll be back with a special episode with stories from people who took our storytelling workshops. You won't want to miss it. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.